number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show. I have the incredible Stephen Shapiro on the line with me, who I have never met before, but we are now about to have a powerful conversation. Stephen, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Stuart. I really appreciate you taking the time. Now, you and I met through a friend of ours named Charlene, and uh, I always want my listeners to know that like any other show I do, quite often I go into these and I've never met the individual, I've never had a conversation with them, and uh, you are no exception to that rule, Stephen. I have uh, never had a chance to meet you face-to-face, and this is our very first conversation, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. I have absolutely no plan of questions to ask you, but um, I will uh, just kind of get us started and then... We'll let our listeners kind of go along on the ride with us. Does that sound good? That's the way I like it. Awesome. Okay. So, so Stephen, like, first of all, what are you happy about these days? What's what's making you excited? Wow, I'm pretty. Uh, the the reality is, I think I'm happy pretty much about everything in life. I mean, I think in in some respects, at least for me, it's it's more of a a state of mind. I love that. You know, my my work is great. My relationship is great. Moved to Orlando, Florida, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just. I guess for me, I come from a perspective of, uh, of appreciation and you know, recognizing that whatever life gives me, as long as I'm having a good time, it doesn't really matter so much because I don't have anywhere to go. Right, right. And where did you get that um, perspective from? Did you learn that from your parents or just from your own experiences in life? I think it's a combination of things, maybe a little bit from my parents, a little bit from my own experiences. And I wrote a book, which I don't know whether, I think the book was more of a reflection of how I've lived rather than a manifesto on how I wanted to live, but it's called Goal-Free Living. It's basically, how do you live a life without goals? How do you be much more present moment focused? How do you, uh, instead of worrying about the future, how do you just sort of uh, enjoy where you are today and, and also, while also not questioning the past right uh, and you know, I, I think I've been you know not always a hundred percent but I think I do a pretty good job of trying to just live that kind of lifestyle of appreciation and uh, uh, I, I, you know I'm not really a person who has specific goals that I'm looking for in life mm-hmm. there are things which I would love to have unfold right but you know, life's going to give me what life gives me, and I can only do what I can do. So, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people listening to this thinking, well, that goes completely against everything that I've been taught. You're supposed to set goals, and I've heard the statistics that if I set goals, I'm going to have a higher likelihood of achieving certain things. But what do you think it is that we lose by setting goals? Well, I've done a number of studies, actually, on statistically valid studies in terms of of people's relationship to their goals. And they're not correlated to, to happiness. They're correlated maybe to success. Mm. But success doesn't, you know, and I mean success in terms of career and finances, but that doesn't necessarily relate to or correlate to, to happiness. Right. And, you know, so for example, you know, there's, there's so many studies. One study says that people who have more money are happier. Right. And what a lot of people then, you know, uh, infer from that is that money made them happy, but in fact, what they found when they dug deeper was that happiness was the source of their wealth, not the other way around. The money didn't make them happy. Their happiness 
gave them opportunities because people wanted to be around them. People wanted to connect with them. They were more motivated and passionate about what they were doing, and therefore wealth became a natural expression of their happiness, not the other way around. Oh, so you're saying that the more the happier they were, essentially, the more money they made. That's you know according to one and actually quite a few studies, and so. Hmm. You know, and there's other studies which look at people's happiness with their money, and it's not based on how much money you have. It's actually how much money you have in relation to your financial aspirations. Right. So if you think you should be making more money, you're not going to be happy with your current financial situation. Whereas, you know, there are people who make, you know, very little money, but they're very happy because they're actually making more than they thought they would make. And so all of this, you know, and I'm not a happiness expert, so I'm not trying to pitch myself that way, but... When I look at creativity and innovation, which is one of the lenses I look at, and I just look at life and what has people you know, live fully, I, I really believe that a, an obsession with the future and an obsession with future outcomes is the thing which, in many respects, destroys people's present moment, and as a result, it destroys people's future. You know, I couldn't agree with that more. It's funny. I used to teach this course. Well, I still do once in a while. It's called the Evolution Group. And one of the exercises that I would get the uh, students to go through would be to go away for the week and to really get into an idea of what it is that they really want from an actual, mostly material perspective. So, you know, how many times do you feel that you want to go out for dinner a week? You know, what kind of car would really make you happy? What kind of house do you really need to live in? And then I told them to really just add it all up. And then to get a sense of how much it would cost to have that on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, and of course a yearly basis. And when they all came back, I asked them to share with me their numbers, and we'd go around the class, and they would tell us the number of uh, the amount of money that they would need to make in order to be able to have all the things that they wanted. And it was so hilarious because the numbers they would be giving me were numbers like fifty thousand dollars a year, seventy thousand dollars a year, forty thousand dollars a year, and in many cases. All of them were making a hundred thousand, a hundred and twenty thousand, a hundred and fifty thousand, and they didn't realize that what they were working so hard to do was just basically correlated with this concept of what they believed they had to make. But when they really looked at what they really wanted from life, all of a sudden they had this new sense of freedom because they didn't have to have this pressure anymore of actually making that amount of money. Yeah, I mean that makes perfect sense. I remember when I was. Uh, a, a kid. I mean, I I'd probably my early teens before I started working. Mm-hmm. And I you know my dad asked me, and he wouldn't tell me how much he made, but he said, "How much money do you think I make?" Right. Because I think he was just curious about my relationship to money. And I said, "If you are making ten dollars an hour, <laughs> wow, that would be unbelievable." <laughs> you no, know, and that that correlates to about twenty thousand a year. Now, of course, this was a handful of years back, but still, in today's money, that might be. Thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, and I'm acting like he was a multi-billionaire, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and and now when I look at it, I say, well, you know, if I'm making ten dollars an hour, I, I guess, given my expectations of where I want to be financially, I wouldn't be quite as happy because I do have certain expectations. I don't need to be making millions, mm-hmm. but there is a certain level, and I try to live a, a somewhat minimalistic lifestyle. I don't spend a lot of money on things. My car. I buy used because I just think it's a it's a better way to uh, you know spend my money and mm-hmm. so I'm I'm I think I'm pretty prudent when it comes I, to money. Well, I think it talks in you're talking about a, an awareness, aren't you? I mean, um, 
I, we, we often just buy things and we don't think about why we're buying these things. And quite often people will buy that really nice car. They buy that really nice house. I mean, I always feel this way when I see people in these houses with all these rooms they don't use. And they ended up buying that house, I think, because uh, it just felt like the right thing to do or it felt like um, in order to be able to be in line with the individuals that they had grown up with, that was just what everyone did. And they don't see that, in fact, it is correlating with the, the happiness that they're either having or not having. You know, I was, I was talking to a woman one time. Um, you and I are, of, of course, we're both speakers and, and, and we do a lot of uh, speaking across um, our respective countries around the world. And I was... Um, backstage with this woman one time and she worked for one of the big banks in Canada and she had told me she said you know what Stuart I oh man it was so tough I just got offered like the dream job I, it was a job where I, I I got the um I would have been the CEO of a major charity that I just would love to be the CEO of and I've, I've been volunteering for, for for years and she said but you know I just couldn't take it because the salary just wasn't high enough and I said to her Oh, well, listen, I, if this is too personal, you don't have to answer. I said, but do you mind me asking, what was the salary? And, you know, with rolling eyes, she said, well, it's only $185,000 a year. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, like, I knew that she had two children that are pretty close to being uh, self-sufficient at the age that they were at. Um, she didn't have any other major dependents. Um, and I thought, she, this is a woman who I believe, I would guess, is probably in her mid-50s. And I thought, you know, you don't have, I mean, most people aren't going to work until they're 80 or 90. I mean, I like to believe I will because I love what I, I love what I do. But a lot of people, let's face it, they, they, end, they stop working 65, 70. And I thought, well, then how much longer do you really need to work for the bank? I mean, this was just ser- happiness was just served up to, on, on a platter for you. And you rejected it because it wasn't in line with what you believe you need to make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's, you know, unfortunately, I, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer that expectation is the source of almost all dissatisfaction in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only thing that I would add to that, which I've sort of discovered over time, is hope is also a source of uh, dissatisfaction. Because you could be expecting someone to act a particular way or expecting to not get a job, but at the same time, if you still have a hope that it will turn out differently that hope can be the thing which leads to disappointment. So uh, I just think that you know, the, the, the reality of the world around us isn't what most of us see. I mean, there's a great quote from, uh, I, I love Sherlock Holmes, and he was just ta- talking with Dr. Watson in mm-hmm. one of the books I was reading. And he, you know, basically, Holmes said, look, we see the same things, but we observe things very differently. And I think that's all it really comes down to is we might see the same things. The reality might be the same, mm-hmm. but our own reality might be quite different. Yeah, isn't that so true? So, so I, I agree with what you're saying about uh, the idea of hope and, and expectation. So how does an individual then, from your perspective, actively, I don't know if the word is eliminate hope, but put hope into perspective or perhaps uh, reframe it or to replace it with something that maybe is more realistic that would cause them to be more happy in life? Well, and I think what you just said is replace it, I think, is the key. Because I remember years ago when I was working on the Goal Free Living book, I was still struggling with one concept in it, which was, you know, Buddhists would call it detachment. Uh, but, it, there's, you know, there's nothing in my book which is religious or even spiritual. It really is written from almost like a left brain uh, physical rather than metaphysical perspective. And, but I was struggling with detachment because there's times that we just want what we want. And I remember I was talking with somebody. And he said, you can't stop wanting something. 
you can only replace that with something else of a higher value. So in order to detach yourself, you have to attach yourself to something of a higher value. Mm. So if you like, you know, just some random examples, you know, if you're trying to sell someone and you're really trying hard to sell them, well, that's a future. The, right. the sale doesn't happen in the present. The sale happens in the future. Right. But if you serve someone and you say, you know what, I'm not about, it's not about the sale. It truly is about how do I serve someone the best I can? We've shown studies where people who serve others sell more than people who are focused on the sale. Uh, and you know, I could give you countless examples. When I try to stop drinking like diet soda, I drink like five, six liters a day of it, and I just tried to stop and couldn't stop. Right. I applied the concept and said, well, maybe I can't stop wanting diet soda, but maybe I can replace it with something else. So I started drinking more water, mm-hmm. and the more water I drank, the less I wanted the sodas. But it wasn't fo- I was no longer focused on eliminating the soda. I was much more focused on creating what I wanted. Ah, uh, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because that's so true about what, so many things that we do in our life, right? We say that we want, uh, let's say, more money. We say that we want uh, a greater relationship with somebody. We, we want to meet the, the, the woman or man of our dreams. And instead, and we, we keep asking ourselves, you know, what do I need to do um, less of or whatever it might be? Like, for example, we want to lose weight. What do I need to do? Less? Oh, I need to stop eating steaks. I need to stop eating chicken as opposed to like exactly what you said. Is that I just need to focus my energy and attention on the things that will bring me health. Uh, you know, I talk about this when people are trying to meet somebody new in their life and somebody um, uh, they want, they're trying to find love. And, and I say, you know, you focus so much of your energy on not having something that you want and hoping, as you say, for that individual to come in your life. And that is such a difficult thing to control because that really is just more of a feeling than anything. But what's in your control is to make a list of the things that you'd really look for and like to have in a partner and then just doing and being those things. So if you would like to have a partner who plays volleyball or is athletic, then join a volleyball league or join a basketball league and and you're going to get so much joy after of, of you know after playing basketball and volleyball that that happiness that you're feeling in that situation uh, there's a much higher likelihood you're going to attract that individual that does those kinds of things as well as opposed to just sitting at home hoping and wanting for those things absolutely and it really comes back to what I think is one of the most powerful pieces of content that I teach when I work with my clients, which is about asking better questions. It's where you started really with all of this is the questions we ask give us the results that we end up with. And, you know, whether they're framed as questions or framed as goals or whatever you want to call them, you know, if your, your quest is to find a partner, well, that might be you know, the reason why we want a partner isn't to have a partner. We want to have a partner because that's going to give us fulfillment and satisfaction and whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we focus on someone else bringing us happiness, we'll never be happy as opposed to saying, well, how do I create happiness for myself such that I will attract the person that I want to be with? Right. I agree with you. You know, and this also reminds me of something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I think it's on the tip of my tongue mainly because a couple of nights ago, I, I ran a big event. It's my annual fundraiser in Toronto. And it's, a, it's an event where we, we, we try to raise money for a different charity each year. And, and whenever I talk to people about the idea of raising money for a charity or when I talk to people about the idea of making the world a better place or trying to uh, end greenhouse, green, um, greenhouse uh, emissions going into the air, whatever it might be, people always see it as such an arduous task. They focus on, oh, my God, you know, 
what are you telling me? You're telling me I got to go out there and I got to reshingle my roof with solar panels, or you're telling me that I have to eat just organic food, or I'm not, I have to turn myself into a vegetarian. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's, if, if you just sit there and focus your attention on the, what you perceive to be negative components about making a, the world a better place, as opposed to reframing it and, sh- uh, and, and putting your focus on, wow, wouldn't it be neat to imagine a world where I was actually breathing cleaner air and how that would affect my health and how it would make me feel more vibrant and more energetic? And wouldn't it be neat to know that my efforts today would put a smile on the face of a young child in Africa? I mean, pick your charity and focus on how it will make you feel so much better to do that thing as opposed to focusing in on how it's actually going to cause you to put in work because you have to go door-to-door raising money and asking people for their change or their bottles or whatever it might be. If you just change your focus, in fact, changing the world becomes a really fun and exciting thing. Yeah, it absolutely. I mean, it, it's all about reframing. Right. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, I think what happens, though, is that we get caught up in our own world and our own mind. I mean, it's like a uh, buddy once told me about some research they did and they were curious, what would guys be more interested? Articles on losing your gut faster, articles on getting six pack abs. Right. Obviously the getting six pack abs is the, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal. It's the utopia where we want to be yet many, many, many more men were interested in lose your gut fast. Right. And the reason is because the reality is as human beings, we only change when the ability to get to the future state that we desire uh, is easier than the, uh, you know, it, it's got to be sort of a cost-benefit type of thing. So if I want to get to a future state, six-pack abs for most people is going to be a massive amount of energy. It's a great benefit, but the cost is way too high just in terms of sacrifice. Right. But losing your gut fast, people can say, you know what, I can, I can sort of get my head around that. Mm-hmm. Not that that much work. So the, the energy relative to the result uh, gives you a very positive impact. And I think that's you know, sometimes the challenges with what you were describing is we do fall back on, well, I've, I've got a problem to solve. I've got my own issues. How can I solve someone else's problems when I've got my own problems? Right. Yeah, such a great point. You know, this also reminds me about uh, relationships in general. And I re- remember um, this wonderful woman who's a friend of mine in New York, and she's a, uh, a love coach. And she... Uh, once said to me, she said, you know, relationships between two intimate partners, um, that is the absolute best place to learn about who you truly are as a person. And she said, and that is the exact reason why so many people leave them. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought about, you know, people, they think that, they've convinced themselves that if I just move on to the next relationship, this individual will not point out the fact that I can be a bit mean sometimes on Saturdays when I haven't got enough sleep. Or they don't point out the fact that uh, I'm not as smart as I'd like to be. You know, all these, they, they, don't point, they don't shine the mirror in, in my face, so to speak. And so they'll leave that relationship, go into somebody else, and they think that that's going to happen. And, of course, in the beginning, who does that? If you meet somebody for the first time, you don't start saying, hey, by the way, you know what? You kind of make a lot of noise when you eat food. But – down the road, two, three years into the relationship, you feel comfortable saying, you know what, by the way, have you ever considered the idea of maybe just closing your mouth when you eat food? And 
So this starts getting a person going, hold on, I don't, don't want to have to take a look at myself. But the reality is, is that this is something you should get excited about. You shouldn't get upset about this. It's something like you can say to yourself, wow, aren't I lucky? I have a relationship where this individual has the guts and the comfortability to be able to say to me uh, things that I wouldn't normally ever hear from my friends or my colleagues. And this is a really great opportunity for me to become a better person, a more sophisticated person, a more interesting person, or a better mom, a better dad, whatever it might be. And people, they allow, once again, their focus to move away from what could be a better person into this just hurts my feelings. And then they, they leave the relationship, and they wonder why they don't grow. They wonder why they don't expand as a person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense. So what is one thing that... Uh, your relationship has taught you about yourself? One thing? Holy moly. <laughs> or something, how, I should say. How, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, I think it really comes down to what you said, which is that we all have blind spots. Mm-hmm. And it's not even so much that we want to deny that's who we are. I mean, maybe in some cases it is, but sometimes we just can't see it. And you know, there are things that you know, I do that, you know, in the light of day as pointed out by others, you realize, hmm, maybe that's not who I want to be. <laughs> what, what, what's one of those things that comes up for you that, you that you can identify? I can be a little bit of a know-it-all. I'm a bit of a <laughs> Sheldon from Big Bang Theory uh, at times, and that's a, that's a pretty freaking annoying way to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's so nice to hear you say this because that is so me as well. I, uh, I'm so convinced that you just picked the subject. And I am an expert on it. And God, isn't it embarrassing when you find yourself down the road and you're pontificating about something with a group of individuals and you'll find yourself, there's that one individual who you've never actually, you don't really know that well, they're new to the group and they'll stand up. They're like, you know, um, I, that, that was wonderful what you said about uh, finding the cure for um, cancer, but uh, I'm actually um, a PhD uh, scientist, <laughs> and I've been working on the cure for cancer for the last 20 years, and that was completely incorrect. <laughs> and you're like, and it's funny because guys like you and I who have pretty type A personalities, and I think that we're able to convince a lot of individuals of, uh, of certain things that may not be true. And, and it's so embarrassing in those moments when you were, I, I, I'm sure that I was right in that moment, and it's, it's embarrassing to find out that I wasn't, huh? <laughs> It happens. It's hard to believe. Uh, but I, I also think what's interesting is in our line of work where we're basically – we are we're, – we're in front of people and you could be in front of a thousand people and you know maybe it's not a thousand people but maybe out of the thousand people, 950 people are you know agreeing with what you say. After a while, you just sort of uh, – I guess you, 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 you sort of build up this perspective. Well, I know what I'm talking about. And then the, the, the challenge is, you know, it's like the, the old Will Rogers quote. He says, everybody's stupid just in different topics. And I think the problem is at times we sometimes don't realize we're stupid on certain topics. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's so true. So when, when people ask you what you do, I'm curious, how do you describe yourself? I think it depends on who I'm talking to. Okay. Uh, so... You know, basically what I will tell people is I'm, I'm, I'm an innovation expert, an innovation instigator, an innovation evangelist. But mm-hmm. basically my whole life is about helping individuals and more importantly organizations and corporations uh, innovate and actually change. Uh, like I, one, one of my most popular titles is Innovate the Way You Innovate. So it's like because I think the way we've been doing innovation for a long time is just an absolutely broken, flawed process. I so, agree. You know, I, I try to help people and organizations 
not just think differently, but then tap into the collective wisdom that exists inside and outside of an organization in a way that's smart rather than the way that we tend to do it. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll, I usually will lead with that, but at the same time, uh, I am a keynote speaker and an author, and I do go speak at events. And even though I speak about innovation, I'm being hired as a speaker first and an innovation expert second. So it really depends on, you know, who I'm talking to, what their objectives are. If it's a, you know, a, a conference with, you know, 5,000 people and they want somebody who's going to be entertaining and energetic and, and they don't care that I talk about innovation, I could be talking about leadership or I could talk about sales. But as long as it's a topic which is going to educate people and invigorate them, I'd rather focus on the fact that I'm an invigorating, engaging, uh, full-body experience speaker. But if I'm talking to my corporate people who are looking to improve their ROI, obviously innovation is my focus. I see. Okay. I'm curious to know what you think about this because I know uh, for years I used to struggle, and I think it was just my ego that was attached to it, where I would – it's that typical situation. You, you're speaking to a 1,000 people. You walk away, and you know intellectually that – not every single one of them is going to take the skills, perhaps, that you've been teaching them and apply it to their lives. And I used to allow myself back to that whole focus thing. I'd allow myself to you know, stew with that and, and be bothered by that. But then there was this awakening I had where I realized that one day where you know, there's going to be a certain percentage who are going to take those uh, ideas that, that you're sharing with them and, and apply them to their lives. Um, but then for some people, you just made them laugh, and that's okay. That just for that one little break in their conference, they had a good laugh or they were entertained, and they may not necessarily take the skills that you've taught them and apply them to their job or to their personal lives, but damn it, they had a good chuckle for 75 minutes. Um, how do you grapple with that? Like, Do you feel okay about not everyone walking away with these ideas that you're teaching them? Because you know the stuff that you're teaching them is going to have a big impact if they actually apply it. But um, you know, how do you grapple with that in your own mind? Well, there's a few different ways that I grapple with it. First of all, my assumption is that when you – and look, there's enough studies out there to, to back this up – that when you give a speech, you know, within – and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but basically, like, you know, within an hour, they've forgotten half of what you've talked about. Within a day, they've forgotten about three-quarters of it, mm-hmm. and within a week, they've forgotten who you are. <laughs> uh, and so I'm not so egotistical to think that, you know, I – you know. In the context of all the millions of things that people are worrying about on a day-to-day basis, that what I teach them is, is going to be top of mind. Given that, there's two things that I sort of think about. One is, uh, you know, what, am I re- what are my real expectations of people? And you know, like, like you said, I, I'm clear that if people said, I'm never going to do anything with this, but it was a great time. I have no problem with it. I mean, you look at you look at comedians. I mean, people who go to see Jerry Seinfeld or, or you know, whatever Jimmy Kimmel, or they watch the Tonight Show, whatever they're watching, mm-hmm. they're not watching it to change their lives forever with some deep, meaningful uh, information. They're just looking to change their lives for that moment. Right. Okay. And if I can change their lives for that moment, that to me is always a positive thing. Uh, but the, the, the bigger part of where I go is, you know, in my books, the very, very first chapter of my latest book, but it's in all of my books really around innovation, is that innovation as an event is the lowest level of innovation. It's basically where it's ad hoc, it's episodic, it happens whenever it happens. And we want organizations to move through the next levels, which is innovation as a process and then ultimately innovation as a system. Okay. So when I talk with my clients, I'll always say, look, innovation is an event. 
lowest level. Guess what? You hired me to speak. It's an event. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the lowest level of value you could possibly get from anyone, me, any other speaker. So what I always say is how do we, instead of treating the event, my speech, as the end, how do we treat my speech as the start, right. the kickoff of a process? Right. And then we launch into, so for example, I've been developing this for two years and it's finally out. We've been doing it with clients and it's been spectacular. It's something called the 30-Day Innovation Challenge, which is a mobile gaming app that we've developed where the people in the audience compete against each other for 30 days answering questions and watching videos about the content they talked about. And they get a prize at the end of 30 days. Well, that kick starts. It keeps the momentum. People have said that now for 30 days, but only 90 seconds a day for 30 days, we've reinforced the message and they get it and it deepens it. And now instead of forgetting me and forgetting my content, it drives it home for those 30 days, which helps to drive the habits a little bit more. That is such a great thing that you do that. It's funny that you say that because that's something I've been um, trying to influence my own clients to do, to say, look, you know, because I talk about powerful conversation and powerful human relationship building. And, I, and I'll get them excited about these concepts of little things that they can do to make better relationships with their customers, clients, colleagues, whoever it might be. But it's true. You have to be committed to doing it um, as an exercise, as part of your daily routine. I, I say to people, you know, in the morning, when you wake up, you go to work, and most people, whether they write it down or not, they have a, a, an idea of what they need to do that day. They have to send certain emails, make certain phone calls, go to certain meetings. I said, I need you to get to a point where you write down, okay, number four, have a powerful conversation with at least one person today. And not just hope that it happens at a conference, not just hope that it happens as an event like you say, but to make it happen as part of your daily system, as you were, as you were mentioning. And, and that's a fantastic uh, idea that you have there. And, and, and I think it's a great way to keep it going. And you're going to have such a, a, a greater um, impact on, on, the, on those clients. And I think this is true for uh, what we go through in our personal lives too, right? It's like I can, let's say, identify something that I know that I need to do to become a better father uh, or to be a better friend or a better son, whatever it might be. And yet I will do it that one time. Um, but then the following week I might forget and the fall. And then, you know, before you know it, you're like, damn it. It's been a year since I read that really great thing in that book about raising children a certain way. I did it for the first month and I didn't keep going with it. You know, what stops us? Do you think that from, from continuously going, like, is it just simply, I mean, one of the things I need to do, I put daily, I put daily reminders on, on the stupidest stuff. Like, you know, as embarrassing as it might sound, I, I, I don't have this, but something like, you know, tell someone in your family, you love them. Bing goes off at three o'clock in the afternoon because it's so easy to forget. So, so how do you feel? Like, well, what do we need to do in order to to make this a consistent thing in our lives? Well, first of all, I'll say I'm pretty crappy at consistency. So, <laughs> <laughs> because I I do need those reminders. So, mm-hmm. for example, there is a uh, an email service that I use called Follow Up Then. Okay, I love it. Followupthen.com, and I don't get nothing from that. I mean, but I just I use it because it's transformed the way I do my email and my to dos. And essentially, what it is is uh, when you get an email in, you if you don't want to do something with it right away, you can just forward it to tomorrow at Follow Up Then, or one week at Follow Up Then, or December first at Follow Up Then, or six p.m. at Follow Up Then, oh. and the email will pop back into your inbox at that time. Oh, I love so, it. So it keeps my inbox down to nothing because if I'm not going to do something with it this second. I can at least say 2 p.m. or tomorrow. Right. And you could fall into the, the, the habit of, of deferring things and procrastinating, but I try not to do that because once it comes back, I'm like, okay, I already 
delayed it once. So I use that a lot as just a tickler system. And I'll say, okay, you know what, on uh, December 1st, I want to go do this. Or I could say every day, you know, send me this message or whatever it is. And so I need, for me, look, there's some people who are very good with their time management systems. I don't have a time management system. I, I'm just really a somewhat scatterbrained, disorganized person. So I need to have things that reinforce for me. And I guess the reason why I mentioned this is I think everybody has to have their own structure. Right. Some people, like a guy I know, he has a physical day timer. Everything goes into his physical day timer. He does not want to work in the digital world, not because he's you know, a Luddite or a dinosaur, but because the physicality of writing it down and all of that really works for him. Interesting. Where other people want to be able to write it down in a digital calendar. Well, I don't want to write it down in a digital calendar because it gets easy for me to ignore the calendar. Right. But I don't ignore my emails. And I, don't, I even found a way now to uh, send me a text message in the future. So if the email's not good enough, <laughs> if it's something I really want, I can send it to me or to someone else in the future. You I know what? On it. December 15th, I want to make sure I send a text message to this person because it's going to be their birthday. I will forget. I'm going to craft the text message right now and I'm going to send it to go off on December 15th. And you know, it's just I think I think things like that are really one of the big benefits of technology. That is perfect. Say, say that website again, please. Well, so follow up then is the email reminder. Essentially, it uh, whatever you send to it from a registered email account. And you can, and it's basically the date and time or duration at follow up then. So if I wanted to come back in one week, I'd do one week mm-hmm. at followupthen.com, right. send it, and delete it. Right. If I'm sending something to a client and you know, I said, hey, you know what, I'll follow up with you in one month uh, when you're ready to talk about this, I'll send the email to the client and then I'll BCC one month at follow up then and then I delete the email and it's gone. I don't think about it. I don't have to look at it. Right. So it pops back. Oh, it's so brilliant. You know, and it's funny because I, I do this in a different way. My my big thing, I'm I'm different than you is in, in the sense that I will use the calendar for absolutely everything. So if let's say I met you at a conference and uh, we were talking about the fact that you really love fishing, and I want to make a really great connection with you. I'm making, I want to make an impact with you. So I write down, you know, Stephen loves fishing on your business card. I get home, and I will go to my calendar, and I will write in, okay, in one week from now, take, and I'll, I'll look at my calendar, and I'll say, okay, I've got, let's say, let's some free time on a Friday afternoon. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to purchase a fishing magazine for Stephen, and I'm going to mail it to him. And just by putting that reminder in my calendar, um, I will go out, I do it, I mail it to you. And what an impact it has. It takes me literally maybe a half an hour of time. Let's face it. In fact, I don't even have to go out. I can go online and ship you a magazine. Right. And it takes me maybe 15 minutes of my time. The impact it's going to have on you is going to be tremendous because I remembered that. But um, I'm amazed at how many people will leave that conference after meeting you, they know you like fishing. They have the idea of sending you a magazine uh, for for fishing, and uh, and they don't um, because they think they're going to do it, and they don't actually leave themselves that uh, that that little reminder. I, I literally I remind myself of absolutely everything, and it has had such an impact on my career. And my relationships with friends, I mean, even like um, certain friends who I'm very close to, it's, I mean, they, it, they're birthdays. How easy is it to forget somebody's birthday on a day when you happen to be on the road, you're doing a speech at some other part in the country, and one of your buddies from high school, it's his birthday that day, unless you have it in your calendar, or unless you're, you know, maybe checking Facebook, you're not going get to the, get the reminder. 
Well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, Facebook, you know, I, I usually see it with somebody's birthday three days ago. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why I, um, you know, at least for, you know, I'd like to call someone, but sometimes at least at a minimum send them a text message so I can schedule text messages, not through follow-up then, but it's actually through a Verizon app. There's a Verizon messages app for the, you know, the iPhone, mm-hmm. probably for Android too, but it allows you to schedule text messages to be sent in the future. and. Right. You know, that's at least, I mean, it's not as personal, but at least you're not completely dropping the ball in case you're so busy. And then you can, you know, follow up and say, hey, you know, I was busy yesterday, didn't have time to call, hope you got my text message, uh, but I, you know, I wanted to give you a call right now. Right. And, do, and, but, sorry. You I was, was going to say, do, do you, what do you think about this? I'm not sure if you've been going through this. It's something that just drives me bonkers, and it's in the same realm of what we're talking about. And that is this whole no reply. Just absolutely, like, I'll send somebody an email and say, hey there, Stephen, uh, listen, you know what? Um, I've got a friend named uh, Charlene that I think you should, uh, you should connect with. I think you guys would be really hit it off and, and that you could do some great business with each other in the future. And no reply. And then I see Charlene maybe a month down the road and say, hey, did Stephen ever uh, get back to you? She's like, no, never responded. And then I see you maybe a year later. I'm like, hey, did you ever get that email? And you're like, oh, man, so sorry. I did see that, but I got so busy. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I'm seeing this all the time now. And I do believe it has something to do with people not being organized or not giving themselves those kinds of reminders or allowing themselves to believe that they will get back to that person. And, but in the meantime, they delete it from their inbox. I've, I've never seen anything like it. I've seen people, friends of mine, who I've invited, let's say, to my birthday party and they don't even respond. And these are like good friends. I, have people just become too busy? I think things just get lost. I mean, it, like if I look at, you know, the, the work I do around innovation, I always say asking for ideas is a bad idea because we've all got ideas, mm. but they're not necessarily good. And even if they are good, they get lost in the middle of 10,000 other things that are going on. And so if I think about the, the, our lives right now, we are bombarded between phone calls, text messages, email. You know, we're doing this via Skype. I mean, if you go through all the different channels that you have, things get lost. And email, let's just take email, for example. The reason why I love the follow-up then is it's not completely eliminated by doing the bonehead thing that you just described. I do it. <laughs> but I remember this was about a year or two ago. I can't remember. But I remember I was, I was on the road, and I went through my inbox and what I was doing was I have a Mac, and I would flag emails that I wanted to do something with. So right. flag meant I'm going to go back and do something with it. The problem was I had literally 1,500 emails, of which I think about 1,000 of them were flagged. And there's a point where you just say, I can't do – I mean, it's just you, – you're, you're, you, the weight it's too much. of all that, it, it's too much. Yeah. So I decided I, I, I will use the follow-up then, and I went through – and I literally went through – every single email, got it down to 10, 10 emails in my inbox, uh, and then those were ones I was going to handle. Then I started really being you know, sort of religious with follow-up then, and what it's allowed me to do is my email inbox, I mean, the other day it was zero, wow, uh, which was awesome, but I try to keep it under 10 yeah. if I can, because I can see that in one screen. Once I have to start scrolling down, whatever's on you know, below the fold, below the page, mm-hmm. the odds of me 
doing something with it becomes less and less and less with each and every passing day. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny. And I think that so many people waste so much time. Um, they think they're being productive by doing all these different things. They don't realize how many minutes and then how that adds up over a year, how many hundreds of hours that are being wasted by trying to do all of it, trying to have a thousand emails in their inbox and oh, I'll get back to it later. And then they in many cases, they'll read the exact same email three or four times, and then they'll yeah. say, oh, I, can't, I still don't have time to get back to it. You just read it for the third time. This is, yep. you, you should get back to this. It's, you know, Tim Ferriss, um, as you probably know in his book, uh, The 4-Hour Workweek, talks about this. And I think it's a brilliant idea where he says how um, in the, uh, do your emails t- uh, twice a day. And, and for some people, I think this would be really effective where you say, okay, well, uh, from 10 to, let's say, 11 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to get just back to any email that's in my inbox. And then at 11 o'clock, no matter what, I'm going to stop. And then at 2 o'clock, I can't remember what time, but at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, whatever, 4 o'clock, near, closer to the end of the day, I'm then going to do the exact same thing for another hour. And what you're really essentially doing is, is you're putting yourself into a situation where if someone emails you at, uh, let's say, 11 o'clock in the morning and you don't get back to them until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, for most people, that's a reasonable amount of time to respond to an email. And if, let's say, someone emails you then at 5 o'clock and you don't get back to, to them until your next window, which is the next morning from 10 to 11, once again, that's a reasonable amount of time to have passed before you got back to them. And just allowing yourself to have these chunks of time where you focus on emails is going to make you so much more productive and so much more effective as opposed to just like uh, every time something pops up in your window, uh, you, you go back to it and, 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 you, and you respond to somebody. But uh, anyway, so enough of that. I want to ask you more a bit, bit, bit more about innovation because I know we only have a, a little bit of time left here. So... What is it then that you find is kind of one of the number one things that stops companies from being innovative? And, and what would you say is one of the number one things that you teach to help them be innovative? I would say the number one thing that they do, and it, 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 it's funny because I'm, here I am, I'm, I'm charging a lot of money to give people advice. And the, the best summary of my content I found in a fortune cookie. <laughs> and it said, you always have the right answers. They just sometimes ask the wrong questions. I love it. And I really think that's the biggest mistake. I mean, it comes back to, again, something we talked about earlier, which is the question gives you the answer. And if you change the question, you'll change the answer. Right. If you change the question, maybe you'll get the same answer, but you'll have an easier time of getting there. Mm. And so I think the biggest mistake is uh, this whole belief that we need to think outside the box. Right. I basically, I go through a whole process and and the punchline of it is don't think outside the box, find a better box. (laughs) Uh, Because if you expand your thinking, I mean, so we've sort of collapsed innovation and creativity together into this one big jumbled mess, but I don't think creativity and innovation are the same thing. I don't think we need more ideas. I think we need better solutions to more important questions. Ah, nice. So that to me is it. And it really links back to Two pieces of my work that has just proven to have an exponential impact on an organization's ability to innovate. One is to innovate where you differentiate. Okay. Figure out what you do best and only work, you know, only invest in innovation for things which truly help you stand out in the market. Right. Don't innovate on the things which are core, which are the areas of your business which your clients expect you to do really well, but they expect the same of everyone. Right. So you can't you don't want to be the best at everything. Be best at what truly helps you stand out. And then based on that, 
again, ask better questions, taking a page from Einstein. He reputedly said, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. Right, right. And, you know, just from my work, I've seen most companies are running around spending 60 minutes working on problems that don't matter. So it's really about the question, not the solution. We get these ideas and we think it's a great idea. And then we run forward with the idea. And the reason why there's so much failure in innovation is we're either solving the wrong problem or we get so wed and attached to ideas that we don't see that they're actually really very bad ideas. Ah, so now let me ask you, do you think that most corporate cultures allow themselves to ask some of these, let's say, more challenging, more flamboyant, more uh, difficult questions? Um, because I've, 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 my experience has been that there are individuals who are very smart sitting around a boardroom table, and because there's a senior vice president sitting at the other end of the table, they are afraid to ask the question which would in fact ignite innovation and which would in fact create amazing solutions to some of the challenges, yet they're too afraid to ask the question because of the actual culture itself. I mean, a lot of it is going to come down to the leader. I mean, so if the leader is a dictator, mm-hmm. uh, then it's a little bit difficult to innovate in t- inside of a dictatorship. Right. Uh, but I find that's really shifting a lot these days. I really because I think what's happening is the the top executives are being they're becoming much more humble. Right. They're recognizing they they may have had the answers in the past, but things are changing so fast that they have to be delusional. To believe that they actually have the answers. Right. Uh, so I think what they're really looking for is now how do we gather input and insights and opportunities from other people? So I really do see that shifting. And I don't see that as much of a problem. Where I see the biggest challenge isn't so much in the people being afraid to speak up. It's the people having the space to breathe. Right. Because we give them so much work and they're so busy. And then we say innovate on top of that. And we need to find a way of integrating you know, this, this innovation process in with everything else rather than being this add-on which never gets done because nobody has time to do it. Oh, well said. Well said. That's a good point. And I hope that people that are listening to this who are working in the corporate world do take that advice and, and apply it to their own lives. So listen, to finish off this, uh, this conversation, I, I want to take it away from the, the work you're doing with the corporate world and just ask you just a fun question. You know, what is an innovation that's actually happening in the, in the world today that has nothing to do with what corporations are doing to become more successful, but it's just an innovation within our society that you find yourself paying attention to or, or really excited about? I think there's a, a lot of exciting things going on, and I, I think the reality is for every exciting thing, there's something which is, which is very nerve-wracking. And I, I'm, I'm going to answer your question in sort of a circuitous way, but okay. I remember I, was, I went to see an event, and uh, they had six Nobel Prize-winning physicists, and they, the conversation was, technologies are going to kill us or save us. Okay. And three of the physicists basically figured, thought that technology would be the end of humanity as we know it. Mm-hmm. And the other three felt that we will always be one step ahead of the technology such that we can prevent the technology from destroying us. So I was just, you know, Interesting. So, so it's not, not, that doesn't answer your question, but I think I'm, I'm excited about, you know, the fact that the, the sort of the miniaturization of everything. I mean, the fact that we can do things today that collaboratively that we couldn't do before. And I guess in the world of innovation, it's that collaboration, that connection. The fact that something as simple as a Facebook or a Twitter allows us to, you were talking about birthdays. Basically, every birthday I get a reminder every day. I can connect with people. I go to a city. I can say, hey, who's here? You know, who wants to get together? So 
that to me, it's that that connection uh, that te- technology can have. And my the thing that will kill us is the technology also tethers us to the technology, and so we're never connected. And so, I, I guess uh, you know, I'm optimistic that at some point we'll put the technology aside and actually do physical connections right. with people. Right. Yeah. And I think like anything else, it's just like it's all how we choose to use it. I mean. Um, uh, my partner one time said to me something about, along the lines of, she said, you know, I believe that every time a new piece of technology comes out, there should be some sort of manual that comes along with it. And it says you're not allowed to get that technology until you read this little book that teaches you how to actually optimize the use of that particular technology um, with the intention of making yourself happier. Whereas, so, you know, these cell phones are mind-blowing, as we both know, and all these things that they can actually do. However... Wouldn't it be great if there was technology that said, hey, guess what? Or sorry, a manual that said you can use this technology to text somebody and then you can text them to meet you in a physical location where both of you can then put your cell phones away and actually have an amazing conversation with each other. Uh, As opposed to what so many people do, they take this technology and they say, I'll just only have a text message conversation and in fact, never meet up with that person. I I think that... uh, that, that it, it is a great way of looking at it. We this great technology that's out there. Wouldn't it be nice if we had some sort of manual on how to really maximize uh, happiness in the way that we choose to use it? I, I think that's brilliant. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And and I, I think the you know the reality is it comes back to what I see even in corporations is we get enamored with technology, thinking technology is the answer. Technology is never the answer. Mm. Technology is only an enabler to something else, and if a company doesn't have the right processes or the right culture in conjunction with the technology, the technology is actually going to do exactly the opposite of what you want. It's going to take time, money, and energy and just suck you dry, but with the right culture, the right process, the right people, it can be incredibly powerful, and the same thing is true with our personal technologies. It's not the technology, it's how we use it. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's no different than the, uh, the, the argument about guns don't kill, it's people who kill. And it's, it's kind of that idea that, uh, yes, I mean, if we had less guns that were available, for sure, you would lower your crime and lower um, perhaps uh, accidental deaths, if you will. But at the end of the day, if people just didn't want to use the guns, if people didn't want to hurt each other, if people didn't want to actually commit an act of crime, then you could have all the guns in the world. You could have 100 guns in every person's house, but they wouldn't be used. And I feel the same way about technology. It's like we, you can keep giving us the best technology in the world, but if people genuinely want to connect with each other face-to-face, if people genuinely want to make the world a better place, then they will, they will just not be interested in using the technology as a means of doing the opposite. So I think that we're, we're both on the same page there, so that, which is a great place for us to uh, perhaps end off this technological device called Skype that we've been using <laughs> <laughs> to have this conversation, which, of course, is the great side of, uh, of technology. It's allowed us to have uh, two people from two completely different parts of the world. You're in Orlando, and I'm in, uh, I'm in Toronto, and, and uh, this has been fantastic. I really, I really do, uh, do appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to have this conversation with me. It's, it's very clear that when you speak, Stephen, that um, you're an authentic individual who genuinely does care about uh, making the world a better place, making people better versions of themselves. And uh, I can tell that you definitely are good at what you do because uh, you've clearly done, given this a lot of thought. So the people who are listening to, uh, to this Skype, uh, this, this podcast right now, um, how can they get in touch with you? How can they learn more about what you're doing? How can they follow you on Twitter? Whatever it might be. Give us all your handles while we're listening right now. 
I think the easiest thing is if you just go to my website, which is steveshapiro.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com. Uh, you'll find me. You'll find uh, all my Twitter and Facebook and all that on there. You'll also see about personality poker, which is something which I love. It's a card game I developed, which helps you learn more about yourself. Hmm. So all that's all that's on my website. So that's the easiest place to go. Ah, super cool. Well, we'll make sure that we list uh, your website in the um, in the in the text version of this podcast. But uh, I'm going to keep you in the line for a couple more seconds. But I'll stop the recording now. But thank you so much for being on the show, Stephen. Oh, it was my pleasure, Stuart. This was a blast. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it.